Hello, and welcome to the Tech Dirt Podcast. I'm Mike Masnick. The world is increasingly technological, so we have better get methodical. Bringing precision to critical digital journalism with the singular vision of the modern monocle. Stopping the copyright police from pulling the wool on us. Facing and taking on all the plate to pay to troll. Document the ways that they aim to take control. Scrutinize and do their lies and make them fold. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. To grab a shovel and dig up the tech. As many of you probably know, last year in 2019, the U.S. had old works lose their copyright and enter the public domain for the first time in decades, unfortunately. <laughs> works from 1923 uh, became uh, public domain. And each year going forward, assuming that Hollywood somehow does not come up with a new copyright term extension plan that I can, can actually make it through Congress, which I don't think is likely, uh, works from each successive year will now enter the public domain. Uh, so this year in 2020, on January 1st, works from 1924 made it to the public, finally. Uh, to celebrate, as we did last year, we held a public domain game jam asking people to create digital and analog games making use of newly public domain works in the belief that what good is a public domain if no one is actually using it. Now, we had a really amazing group of entries this year that showed even more polish uh, than last year's batch. Uh, and for today's podcast, we wanted to talk through some of the winners and the entries uh, and the overall project with the team of us that put it all together, which is myself, uh, along with Randy Lubin and Lee Beaton. Uh, so, guys, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Mike. Hi. So, uh, Randy, let's start with you. Um, let's talk about the idea to have this public domain game, Jim. You were the one who first suggested it to us, and we immediately jumped on board. But um, why don't you describe what made you think of the idea in the first place? Sure. So, like many folks in the community, I was very excited to finally have works entering the public domain en masse. And uh, at the same time, I've been very active in a variety of analog game design communities, which have been getting increasingly active and enthusiastic about game jams. So it just felt like a great fit. Like, let's take all this amazing content that's now free to use and remix and get, you know, in practice, deployed, get a bunch of games in one shot that take, take advantage of all, the, all this great material. And, um, and you and I had been collaborating on multiple initiatives at that point and just, you know, it's such a good fit with uh, with your community that it made sense to team up. Yeah, yeah, no, and I think I think it was fun. It was um, last year's was fun. It was exciting to see people get excited about it and and to put together a bunch of entries um, this year. So you know, one of the things that we know is we had fewer entries this year than last year. Last year we had what about thirty entries, um, and this year. We had about 16, but but we all sort of discussed how the entries this year seemed a lot more, um, you know, more polished and and more thorough and more thoughtful in in some sense, which I I think was kind of exciting. And I know I heard from at least one person who did enter last year who told me that uh, that they didn't enter this year because last year's entries were too good. <laughs> oh no, game games are supposed to be super accessible. It's a good time to just like do something a little bit just to hone your chops as a designer. Let's, yeah, let's do what yeah. we can next year to make it less intimidating. <laughs> okay. Okay. That seems like a good idea. Um, so, but let's, let's talk through some of the, the entries and the winners. Um, and I'm going to start with the, the, the one that first caught my eye. And in fact, then one for the best analog game, 
which is the 24th Kandinsky. Um, and um, d does someone want to describe what it is? Or you want me to take a stab at it? What's I can describe it if you want. Or I sure, think it go was for the it. first one that caught a lot of our eyes. Um, I don't remember if it was one of the first ones to come in or not now. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, it's so essentially it's an art remixing game. And this was one of the things we thought was cool overall was how a lot of the games were about remixing in the public domain and reimagining works, you know, as games, not just in, in the material they're using. And so it's an art remixing game using the paintings that Kandinsky uh, produced in 1924, uh, where you print a bunch of them out as references, and then the players take turns reproducing, like drawing for themselves, copies of elements from his famous abstract paintings and arranging them onto a big shared canvas with some sort of fairly light but, but well-crafted rules to make that all go around in a fast way, and then using a sort of party game voting system where people see who's whose contribution to the group work that you're piecing together from these Kandinsky elements is the best. And then the sort of fun idea at the end that the winner takes the work home, or if there's a tie, you cut up the work you've created and take pieces of that home with you. Uh, so I don't know, there's something cool about that on every level. Uh, it, very simple, but you can immediately picture how it would be fun to play in different settings. It seems like it would be fun game to play with kids too, uh, mm -hmm. like or adults could enjoy it, like a very broad sort of appeal of, of who could play it and when and and such a perfect uh, embodiment of what the game jam itself is all about right uh you know. yeah just the fact that it sort of built into it like remixing and and you know creating something new out of out of ideas that are based on old works um was was really really cool and just very very visual um you know i i really like the idea of of uh, of that and as well as the fact that it was very different right i mean i couldn't think of another game that was kind of like that randy maybe you have thoughts on on other games that are more like this but i'd never seen anything like this um, certainly nothing as as earnest or focused on the artistic output i mean there there's some fun games like a uh, fake artist goes to new york where people are collaboratively adding to a drawing but that's it's not not in service of uh echoing a particular style or remixing in this way so this is this is something special here yeah and, and you could also very much see how it could be extended and expanded too, right? I mean, you know, you, it's the idea is you play with some paper and some markers and maybe some colored stuff that you can cut up and whatnot, but you could expand it and play it in an art studio with paints and all sorts of things if you wanted to, or you could pull other source material other than Kandinsky from the public domain or, you know, not from the public domain if you wanted <laughs> to, uh, to play it with other material or you could mix and match material. So, like, it would be fun in its own form as it is right now and people could do all sorts of other stuff with the idea as well right yeah yeah i definitely thought that was cool and then i it was i guess <coughs> excuse me kind of random that um that i guess he did 23 paintings in 1924 so i i found it just amusing that you know the title is the 24th kandinsky which just fits with the the 1924 theme uh, but obviously completely random that that worked out that way. Yeah, it, definitely. But it was a cool thing for the designer to spot, um, not just yeah. that it echoes the year, but it, just that framing of like, you're creating the secret 24th painting he did is itself right. a fun framing for this idea of the game, you know? Yeah, yeah. I think that's, that is true. All right. Um, so uh, anything else on the 24th Kantinsky or should we move on to the next one? I mean, I think we may bring it up again as we talk more about, you know, some of this broader theme of remixing that came up in the games. But for now, we can probably touch on sure. some of the others. Yeah. 
All right. So the um, uh, the the best digital, the one for best digital was uh, the "You Are the Rats in the Wall." Um, and, and we should note that's a returning winner for best digital too. So Alex Blackman, we also gave that award to last year. And what was his game last year? Uh, it was the stopping by the woods on a snowy evening to steal treasure mashup <laughs> right. of Robert Frost with sort of Dungeons and Dragons esque stuff, which right. was really cool. So which he, I cool. didn't notice this till I was tweeting about the stuff, but he's an Onion and Clickhole writer. Oh, okay. So that explains why his games have this sort of built-in sense of humor to them. Yes, yes, uh, that's that's interesting, and so. Um, uh, this was based on H.P. Uh, Lovecraft uh, 1924 story. Which is something I think we're going to be seeing a lot at over the years, um, you know, the coming years, as more and more of his work enters the public domain. Yeah, and it's kind of, you know, obviously very well known and, and someone whose ideas are probably fun to play with in some sense. And another. already one of the most adapted, you know, yes. writers in that also genre. True. Yeah. Also true. Yeah. On the game side, there, there's just so many games that are inspired by the Cthulhu mythos. Um, and I mean, even, even back in the twenties, uh, folks riffing off of the mythos and extending it in all different directions. I think a lot of what folks think of as, uh, cosmic horror and Cthulhu and horror isn't even from Lovecraft, but from other, authors sort of creating in a shared universe. So it, it'll only accelerate. I think it's especially interesting now, given that I think there's there's a lot of consensus online that there's a lot of awareness that Lovecraft was super racist and problematic right. and sexist in like yeah. so many directions. And you and, can't get very far through this story without knowing that. So right. Exactly. Yeah. So I, I, as soon as I, I, I started playing it, I was kind of nervous. I didn't know if Alex was going to be able to address it was going to address it head on or just ignore it or just delete the problematic elements but it was great like in one of the little like um tutorial pop-ups at the very beginning it's it it implores uh the player in any creative like don't use racist content like just just don't um which is which i was very happy to see <laughs> yeah it's one of those things you know i mean obviously if you're going to try to address it in depth you need to really have an idea for how you're going to do that um, you also kind of don't want to just ignore it completely. I think he hit a really great, uh, great balance for that. Yeah. And, and the idea here, the, the game is that as, as the title says that you are the rats in the wall and that in, in sort of driving the, uh, the main character crazy, I guess is the, um, the theme. Um, yeah. So I guess to give the, the quick overview of how the game works, uh, the, so uh, as per the story, there's the uh, descendant of a long line of, uh, I guess, like British aristocrats has returned to his ancestral home castle and uh, and discovered um, under the sacrificial altar a uh, cave slash like land of wonders. And, um, and in the story, you know, the more he finds out, the more he realizes how horrible his ancestors were and that they were doing all sorts of terrible um like eugenics human breeding programs and human sacrifice and cannibalism um and then uh that character goes mad and uh, decides to eat some of his uh folks who are along for the the journey um but in this case you're playing the rats who are trying to drive the main character crazy by uh, exposing him to more and more of his uh ancestors wrongdoings um and uh, and in this case, like the, the core mechanic is that you are controlling this trail of rats and trying to use it to uh, shepherd is probably the right term, like shepherd the main character to certain parts of the map. 
um, the, uh, the design of the map, I mean, it's done in RPG Maker, but it's you know, clearly a lot of time and thought was put into um, making this visually interesting um, and telling little, little vignettes um, through the visual design of the map and the layout. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, like the original story uses a pretty straightforward sort of symbol symbolism structure where, I mean, the whole idea is, you know, are the rats real or do they represent just sort of his madness and his own curiosity about these things? And, uh, you know, in that very sort of blunt, simple way that a short story can do. And the game kind of makes a little bit of fun of that at the beginning, um, puts you in the shoes of the rats themselves. The mechanic is sort of very simple, but... Uh, I guess almost a little purposely frustrating, you know, it, it's a little hard to get the hang of how to shepherd him around, but it was, I thought a really good effort or a good decision to try to put a little mechanic in there to make this actually a game that has some aspect of play to it as you push him through this story. You know, it would obviously could use a lot of polish, but that was what made it stand out to me on the digital side of the games. Yeah, I like that too. And the other thing I liked about it was, you know, there he added in this element of humor, <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. you know, especially in the the um, sort of introduction and text descriptions and sort of, you know, mixed in the sort of elements of Lovecraftian language with more modern vernacular. <laughs> modern uh, vernacular and a heavy dose of just ironic distance. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a very classic uh you know, he takes sort of one very basic comedy premise of the tension between these two types of communication, as it were, and uh, he does a great job of mining lots of little jokes out of that without it getting tiresome, right? I mean, over the course yep. of a short game, but still. You know, and there are good moments like, you know, after you've sort of been eased into this idea of these people talking in a modern kind of casual way, but with these bits of Lovecraftian prose thrown in, and then... um I really enjoyed the moment where during the dialogue, you know, the rats speak and they're labeled as probably imaginary rats. Right, right. <laughs> you know, so he finds little ways to slip in, slip in great jokes throughout the writing, which was certainly fun. Yeah. Yeah, no, it was, it was really, really clever. I liked it. All right. Uh, should we move on to best adaptation? And this was The Hounds Follow All Things Down by Jay Walton. Yeah, who, again, is our other returning winner who had submitted Not a Fish last year. And oh, won. okay. Yeah. I didn't realize that. Not a Fish was, was kind of a – that was a uh, – that was a good – that was just a crazy one last yeah. year. Yeah, <laughs> and, and we gave that best deep cut last year. And, yeah, the moment I realized that, I was like, oh, that, that makes sense because the hounds follow all things down, shows a similar type of outside-the-box kind of thinking on how to right. put a game together. Because um, – and they – you know, they in both cases, it's about – kind of starting from a weird place where the meaning is very obscured and things are chopped up into little bits that don't make a lot of sense and kind of constructing those and realizing there was this sort of meaning or theme or tone underpinning them all that you didn't notice at first, which is a very cool thing that, again, itself, like, celebrates this idea of remixing and and how stories change and how works can serve different purposes later and stuff. Yeah, so do you want to describe how, how this game actually works? Uh, do you want to take this one, Randy, or do you want me to try again to sure. describe it? Yeah, yeah, no, I can, I can jump in. So this is, I, I was very impressed with this. I think it's a really cool experiment on the storytelling side, and, and there, there are multiple layers of what make this interesting and cool. So first off, um, the the framing is that this is a uh, epic poem that is con- written and contained fictionally within 
uh, Lord Dunson, Dunsany, is that how you pronounce the name? Lord I'm, I'm not sure the pronunciation, but yeah. So Lord Dunsany's novel, uh, The King of Elfland's Daughter. Um, and so it's a, a fictional poem within a fictional novel. And, uh, and the poem itself is generated by putting the entire text of the novel through, I think, um, uh, either GPT-2 or one of the other neural nets to procedurally generate the content. And so, uh, so Jay Walton started by, by doing that and then taking the best snippets of the poem and putting them on different cards um, along with uh, prompts for uh, what type of scene to tell um, of what's happening in this poem. And what, what are the key questions that need to be answered? Who, who are the key characters who might be in the scene? And then what the players are doing is, um, so you go around taking turns uh, setting and playing these scenes to find out what's happening. Um, but you are playing these cards with the bits of poetry and prompts next to each other. And the context in which they're uh, arrayed, not just uh, linearly, but in a grid, um, you know, above, below, to the sides of, you know, the, that context ends up also being an input into the scene and the meanings of the scene. So you're building out this uh, tableau over your table with all these snippets of poetry and prompts. And I just thought that was really cool. I, I really don't know much that's doing anything close to that on the storytelling game side. And um, I think the combination of using uh, te this interesting uh, text generation as input to create uh, evocative prompts, uh, and then also the ability of like, every time you play this is gonna be different because cards are gonna end up different next to different other cards, uh, just led to such interesting generative play. Yeah, and it was building on what he did in Not a Fish, which also employed that sort of grid of things that had that you know you connected in different ways to see how they linked to each other out in in you know a three D space, which I thought was really cool. And he sort of took it even further with this one, which was neat. I just let me just read. I pulled it up because it is, I think, worth telling people because it's pretty cool. I'll clarify what you, what you were saying about the uh, the way the text was generated. So he he says in his designer's notes here, the text excerpts were drawn or were procedurally generated from the text of the book by putting it into Jamie Brew's PT voice box, which you, anyone can go get on GitHub. Um, and then it has this tendency, he says, to get caught in loops. So when you give it the text of the King of Elfland's Daughter and ask it to continually pick out the sixth most likely word to appear next using its predictive text algorithm, you get these sort of looping kind of strange outputs that collapse back in on themselves. And he gives an example of one in the designer's notes. And they eventually start just repeating themselves. So he would try that out with a bunch of different settings, get it to pick the 13th most likely word, the fourth, or, or give it a pattern. First the second most likely, then the third most likely, what have you. And um, any version of that would get it to collapse into these weird loops where it started repeating itself. So he did that using like a, then a randomized system that randomized which word to try to pick out. And out of all of this got this crazy set of all of these little weirdly nonsensical text snippets, which he then hand-edited to make them a bit more usable and suitable to the gameplay, and they become all the poem excerpts that you then build into this epic poem. And to give you a sense of what these prompts end up looking like, one, uh, one of the individual tiles that you might, cards that you might draw, the quote on it is, upon these lawns, the hounds came for his dreams. Um, and the questions that are associated with it briefly describe the lawns, whose dreams are the hounds coming from, and then as a scene question, you play to find out what happens to his dreams. Um, and I guess to, to, Nate, to read a couple other snippets of text to give you a sense of it, there's, in the house, among our earthly things waned, the hounds saw him, and a spell indeed shall always be upon those lawns. So there's 
there's a lot of these interesting evocative prompts that definitely feel like they're right at home in the original text. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I enjoy mournfully the old leather worker had to work his sword as a strange <laughs> but intriguing one. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, but and then what I also think is really cool is so this idea is already neat for generating a poem out of this, but he fit that concept of what it is you're doing into the world of this uh, of this book. It's not just arbitrary. So the idea, you know, um, the king of Elfland's daughter is this early uh, influential sort of. It became very influential after its time, or got a lot of recognition uh, after uh, the author died, I believe. Um, that is a sort of early fairy story style fantasy novel that is apparently very influential on certain realms of the fantasy genre even today. And it's, you know, this whimsical world that is kingdoms and has this very loose, legendary, mythical feel to it all the time with these elf characters who are, you know, very colorful and capricious and passionate and all of these things. So, so the idea behind the game is you are in this world, you are, you know, entertaining these elven audiences who love this epic poem that is a great part of their history, but this epic poem that has been around for however, you know, all of history uh, is always changing. Different people have different takes on it. Different people have different performances of it. And their culture is always thirsting for the latest, most exciting, you know, retelling or performance of this epic poem from Elfland. And so I really like that idea too, that it, really contextualizes the way you're building this poem out of all these cut up pieces into a thing that's actually supposed to be taking place and, and make some sense and fits again into this broader idea of what the public domain is all about and what remixing is all about. Yeah, no, I thought, I thought that was cool. Again, you know, getting back to the, like the 24th Kandinsky sort of bringing in the remix element to the game itself is is really cool creatively and, and though this is in a very different way but still mm-hmm. very cool i mean it is you know it, it felt to me very yeah very much about the tradition of oral storytelling and some mm-hmm. of these old you know the oldest works that we have are things that were or existed for a long time as oral stories before they were written down in the version that we can now see right and so it, i love how it taps into that whole history of the way art and creativity develops, which is what makes the public domain so fascinating and, you know, long copyright terms so frustrating to begin <laughs> right, with. Right. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Should we move on to the next one? This would be the best remix, which is 1920X, I guess, or 192X, depending on how you uh, pronounce it, but I believe 1920X. By, yeah, that's what uh, I've been saying. Uh, Chloe Spears. And this one is mixed together a whole bunch of different different sources in, into one. So who wants to describe that one? I I just played it uh, through again to see if I'd like you know missed any options or anything before, so I can try to describe. Go for it. it. One. It's a it's a Twine interactive fiction in the sort of classic mold of those. It's fairly straightforward. Um, you know, moving through this story. Not a whole lot of interactivity, though it does incorporate a couple little fun moments that uh, that I think, you know, make it neat as a game. But the main thing about it is just it's a very well-written, very cool story, clearly by someone who, you know, gets and cares about this concept of the public domain and of copyright and of reusing works. And it sort of paints a dystopian future in which copyright is absolute and no one can really do anything that, 
even hints at building on a previous work without permission from some, you know, uh, distant body that controls all of this. And then links that in through a sort of silly-ish time travel story with the dawn of the invention of the computer and the thinking engine with Charles Babbage and Ada Lovelace and then, uh, you know, weaves this all together with putting you inside of a film. I, I'm realizing as her described, it's very difficult to describe because yeah. it is very strange and comes at you from all directions. But, yeah. but it all adds up into a very well-conceived, very cool story with a clear theme that I found really engaging to read. Uh, you yeah. know, like I, w- I would read it. You could edit it into a short story and it would be a good short story as well, I think. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this one was very much a, a sort of you know, interactive fiction experience more than a game, right? Um, and, um, you know, and I, I thought there were, <laughs> I liked how, you know, it, it brings up, right, that, um, like, Rhapsody in Blue is, uh, you know, is now out of copyright, but it's the composition, not a bunch of the recordings. Many of the recordings are still very much in copyright. Um, and so, you know, it, 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 even bringing within into this interactive fiction, just using the composition <laughs> is like, uh, like you begin to think like, how, how are you going to do that within, uh, you know, how do you bring a composition, but not the recording into the, into a, um, yeah. So there is the snippet of music at the end, um, right. which I'm not sure if she recorded herself or if it's a, someone's performance out there that is not under copyright or what the case may be. Uh, it's just a quick snippet of part of it on the piano. So, and that was, uh, that's always a, a cool you know, and useful effect in a text interactive fiction if you can bring in something a little surprising, like a snippet of music at the end, or there's a few other moments you know, when the str- screen color shifts quite dramatically. There's, there's quite a few little touches like that throughout this to elevate it beyond just the text. And they're, right. they're simple, and then there is a fun moment where it gives you an inventory, as you might have in a more traditional adventure game, that you have to pick an item out of and use. And it's very simplified and streamlined, almost more... A, a nod to that mechanic than actually using that mechanic, but that in itself I thought was very cool. Yeah, yeah, and and as you noted, it includes a uh, uh, attempt to uh, uh, describe to tell a Buster Keaton movie or film in in words. <laughs> yeah, that was one of our uh, judges' comments. Uh, right, right, that right. They had they had put in in their notes, and I thought that was worth quoting in the uh, description of the game because I thought that was quite neat. And and it's true, and it sort of in itself mines a little bit of comedy out of that very dissonance. Like like it's sort of self awarely ridiculous the way it's describing right. this very visual movie in in text. Uh, and and it it puts a sense of self-awareness about the text and the writing into you right at the beginning. Cause the very first line that you read when you start reading this letter that introduces the story is the guy saying he's going to be more direct. Um, and then going on a long aside about how unlike the way he normally goes on long <laughs> asides about nonsense. And so it puts you in this very conscious space of thinking about the text right off the bat. Like it's just very well, very well written. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I thought it was, it was super well written and really engaging. Um, and and brought in all of these different, you know, public domain texts, which is which is why it got sort of best remix. 
Yeah, I mean, a lot of the games, you know, got nominated for a few categories by different judges, or there was some competition for the categories, and we sort of had to do some thinking on, you know, what was really best in each category, but that one was the one that stood right out. Uh, Almost everyone who played it nominated it as the best remix game. Um, Right. Yeah. Cool. All right. Um, Next one was best deep cut. This is for uh, just so people know deep cut was something that was you know not you know there are different published lists of what things are coming out uh into the public domain and they they list all the super well-known or more popular ones um but the best deep cut was for something that wasn't named on one of the major lists Uh, and in this case it went to legends of charlemagne um i am not sure how to pronounce this name abelardsnaz abelardsnaz i think oh that works yeah that's better (laughs) that's better than my bad attempt (laughs) um and um and this was this was interesting because it was really it 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 also combined a bunch of public domain works not all from 1924 some from before but most of them using the artwork of nc wyeth um uh, starting with Legends of Charlemagne, which was a, 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 a much older, it's from the mid-19th century uh, book by Thomas Bullfinch. But in 1924, they published a version of it with illustrations by N.C. Wyeth um, and then turned it into this kind of uh, card game um, that I thought was very creatively done. And it looks great. Um uh, yeah, I think one of the things I thought was cool about this was it made me start reading up on a bunch of this stuff, too, which is another part of the fun of mining these old works from the public domain, and especially the deep cut idea of finding things that aren't already well known, right? I you know, wasn't really sure what this was when I saw it, and then I w- looked a bit more into N.C. Wyeth, and I was like, oh, I recognize some of these images, absolutely. Like, he was you know, around doing a lot of book covers and magazine work and some advertising work in the early 20th century. And then Legends of Charlemagne is better known these days as one of the three parts of what's usually published as Bullfinch's mythology. Right. Which, again, is another thing. It was like, oh, okay, I do, I do have some awareness of what that is. And then, you know, so I dug into reading more about it and all those things. And, and I thought that was, you know, a fun aspect of this and a, a fun aspect of the remixing from the public domain in general, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. just learning about stuff. Sorry, Randy, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, super fitting that when the book was published in 1924 with the illustrations, it was a great example of taking something that was already in the public domain and loved and pairing it with new work, in this case, the art from N.C. Wyeth. And so, you know, what, what are we doing now with this game, but taking that art and now remixing it into a new, new medium, new format. So it's great. Yeah. 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 And, and, uh, and the game itself is, is, I don't know. It seemed like a somewhat typical kind of card type of game, um, but just, you know, using all this great artwork um, and, and done really well. I mean, turning the cards into, you know, cards with bits of information on them, but using that original artwork made, made it really stand out just visually. Yeah, definitely yeah. visually coherent, <clears throat> coherent and evocative. And uh, for the game itself, it, it is a deck builder game um, that, also feels like it has elements of something like a splendor in it. So your your engine building is, you know, you're starting with some cards, you're using that to purchase more cards that will let you purchase another round of cards that will hopefully let you start buying cards worth victory points. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I don't think any of us got to actually try out the game itself in terms of printing it out. I think that was beyond the scope of the judging. 
but it definitely looks like it is uh, playable and likely fun. And the fact that it, it well integrates the visuals is just perfect. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It was, um, you know, cause he could have very easily just leaned entirely on the strength of those paintings. Cause they are great and they're perfect art for this sort of fantasy combat card game, right? They, they, you know, you couldn't find anything more suited to that. You could put some of these paintings on a magic card today and they would look great. Right. Um, but rather than just leaning on that, he he did a lot of work to make the cards look really good in their own right. So that was cool. Yeah, I mean, this was one that struck me as, um, you know, as one that you know you could easily see actually become a packaged box game. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. All right, and then the last of the awards we had was for best visuals, and this was Hot Water by Reltru. Um and this was based on a 1924 Harold Lloyd silent film um but done as like a you know uh pixelated um sort of old-timey video game but it 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 somehow was able to mix both the idea of sort of like a a simple um you know uh, pixelated old-timey video game with a even more old-timey, um, uh, you know, silent film from the 1920s. Yeah. Um, yeah, I thought it was a very cool combination that he pulled off very well. He also, you know, I think used... Um, it's made in Unity, which is a more advanced game engine mm-hmm. than, say, RPG Maker, or at least in a lot of senses. So, you know, he sort of went the furthest with trying to do something really, I think, spend some time on getting the effects just right and the the timing of it just right. I mean, it's a very simple, short... You know, yeah. just kind of diverting game, but the, the but game itself was... is is very simple. Uh, and but I will say, as I played it, like I was definitely smiling through the whole mm-hmm. thing. Yeah, it's you know, you're you're basically just running and trying to avoid stuff. Um, but but there's there's just more elements to it that that make it fun and at least made me smile throughout the whole thing. Yeah, yeah, I thought so. I mean, it's again, you know, for a. a small game jam thing you're making in a short period often the best way to do that is to just pick one sort of neat idea that give that ties the whole thing together and we can see that in a bunch of these games and in this one it very much was that anachronistic combination of you know this pixelated video game with the old uh silent film interstitial cards and and the music and it all just came together into you know you see the vision for this game you see what it's going for you get its style right away it works right through the end it's very cohesive just just very well done for a short project like that yep yep i i definitely like that um so those were all the awards were there any others that uh any of the other entries that anyone wanted to talk about I can call out a a couple that were particularly interesting. So if you listeners want to go to the site and check it out, um, uh, I'll call out a few different ones and say a little bit about each. Uh, So What Price Glory uh, is based on a play uh, that takes place during World War I and has since been remade into, I think, two movies. Uh, In this case, the game uh, is a hack of a game called For the Queen, which is, I think, one of the most elegant, light storytelling games that have come out in the last year or so. Uh, and it's my go-to game for introducing new players to storytelling games. And so uh, the, the core game itself is really about a series of prompts. Um, so there's a deck of prompts that you're passing around, drawing and answering, or giving to somebody else to answer. 
uh, For the Queen, by the way, is by Alex Roberts. Um, so what, what Price Glory by um, uh, D. Donlon, I think is the designer's name, uh, has a similar method. And I think the reason I wanted to call it out was partly because this is such an ideal way of dipping your toe into game design or doing just a little bit of, of easy, easy adaptation. So uh, in this case, taking the material from the play and having each character beat, um, like character uh, moment scene uh, transcribed into a different possible prompt so that you can play something that deals with all of the same themes and questions and moments uh, as the original play, uh, but to tell your own story too. And so in this case, it takes place during World War I, um, focuses on a small group of characters that are part of the same uh, platoon, I think. And uh, ultimately the game ends when a card is drawn that says, you're called back to the front, do you go? So I thought that was really, I thought it was a good, um, good in execution in terms of uh, porting this story into a, uh, into another game system that is easy to remix, but also like really just highlighting out how easy it is to participate in a jam like this. And, uh, and hopefully we'll see other folks doing similar remixing. I know last year somebody had done a lasers and feelings hack, which is another very popular storytelling game to hack because uh, it's like a one page RPG that is pretty easy to adapt to a new genre. Um, so that was one game I wanted to call out. Just uh, before you move on from that one, I just also wanted to call out uh, that it's a great example of why beyond just the public domain, why Creative Commons and other open licensing is such a great thing too, right? Because uh, for the Queen, the base rules or the base system of that is under a Creative Commons license, which is why someone can so easily go grab it and combine it with some public domain stuff, make a whole new game. I think that's very cool. And, and it's a good reminder of why... You know, it's great to put stuff out there, even new stuff that is licensed in such a way that people can use it and build on it because it can lead to all sorts of great things. Yes, exactly. And uh, Lasers and Feelings also is under a Creative Commons license. Uh, and I think that both designers end up getting, uh, you know, so John Harper of Lasers and Feelings and Alex Roberts of For the Queen have been helped in getting even more exposure, even more people ultimately buying their games because they released uh, a version of their rules under a Creative Commons license. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Um, I guess one other one I'll call out. Uh, I think this is just this is kind of an amusing mashup. Um, was uh, he who gets mauled? So uh, it's a mashup of an Agatha Christie, uh, Hercule Poirot um, uh, mystery story with a movie, a silent from 1924 called He Who Gets Slapped. Which it's worth taking the time to like look up the Wikipedia description of this <laughs> because it, it is a like ridiculous story about. Uh, uh, spurned lover who becomes a clown and uh, I think it was one of our judges um, uh, Jian Shim who called it to my attention and it's just like a ridiculous story and I'm glad somebody adapted it and in this case mixed it up with a, a mystery because there's, there's a murder in the, in the, in the original uh, silent film and so it just very well blends with uh, Agatha Christie's style and I think Agatha Christie had at least one work that entered the public domain this year so uh, I, yeah, I, that was I... fun to see I believe, yeah, there's like a Hercule Poirot story in the public domain now, right? I think I heard some of about that happening. I, I've never known Agatha Christie very well, though. I know my parents watched a lot of Hercule Poirot uh, BBC adaptations when I was growing up. Cause they <laughs> liked them, so. um, yeah, and, and just other ones. Um, there's uh, Bears and Squares. Um, I thought was interesting. I wanted to to see a little bit more and, and sort of understand exactly how it played, but it was taking a, a, a. a. Milne poem 
um, and trying to turn it into a, an actual board game um, that I thought had some some possibility that was pretty interesting. Yeah, that was cool. Like they were clearly, you know, making a real effort to develop a sort of new board game with its own mechanics for this, which is an ambitious thing to do with that yeah. level of, you know, a, of scope and and sort of brand new rules and stuff. But it was very cool. Effort. Yeah, definitely, definitely one people should go check out. And and yet still like reflective of the poem that it was based on, which you know it was kind of, <laughs> you know, kind of surprising. Um, cause I, I sort of, you know, sort of went through the rules of the game and was like, this is, wow, there's, there's a lot of stuff going on here. And then I, f I found the poem and I was like, oh, this is all showing up in the board game. <laughs> so I thought that was kind of cool. Yeah, it's, it is neat. Like you read the poem, you know, if you weren't thinking about it in that sense, it would never cross your mind that the poem is actually describing something you could very much use as the rules of a board game. Right, like the right. you see it, you're like, wow, it really is. Like there's really a lot in here you can use to create like a system. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I thought that was cool. Um, were there any others? Um, well, let's see. Before, go yeah, ahead. go ahead. I was going to say the the Secret Santa um, had some interesting gameplay, sort of a memory game. Um, didn't have it, it, it didn't have that much that was tying it to the 1924 public domain, though. I mean, it had sort of music playing in the background that was from 1924, um, but the, it was less of the rest of it was really about or pulling in a 1924 related item. Uh, yep. I wanted to call out before uh, we forget just the uh, great work done by our judges. We had a yes. phenomenal set of judges that are both great game designers, analog game designers, digital game designers, as well as some experts on intellectual property in the public domain. So I'll just I'll read through them now. Uh, Sharang Biswas, Patrick Ewing, Eric Goldman, Parker Higgins, Tim Huang, Albert Kong, M. Laser Walker, uh, the three of us here, um, Jason Morningstar, Leslie Shannon, Gian Shim, and uh, April Kit Welsh. And they just did a great job of uh, analyzing the games, calling out what was really uh, interesting or special about them. And we're deeply appreciative for the time they put in. Yeah. 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 They, they did a, a really, really great job. Um, and, and, and as you noted, it's these two worlds uh, coming together. Not that they had no connections beforehand, but I, do, I really love doing that, you know, pulling this mix of people who are coming at it more from the IP and public domain side, people coming at it more from the gaming side and, you know, seeing how they intersect. And uh, I think that's a really cool aspect of this. Yep. And um, thank you guys as well for, for helping to put this together. Randy, certainly for coming up with the idea in the first place and, and helping to organize everything and, and putting together the pages and the, and the, uh, getting all the judges on board and everything uh, and, and, uh, getting them to do the judging, which, which they did. Yeah. Um, but yeah, this was, this was a really fun project. And I think, you know, we have decided we've already talked about, you know, next year's 1925s and we're planning to do that. Um, so if you're listening, Start start thinking. <laughs> it's maybe a little early, and you cannot mm -hmm. cannot actually make use of those works until January first. <laughs> but well, maybe you can't publish anything you make right. use of those works for. <laughs> right, but maybe start looking through stuff that's coming into the public domain in uh, from nineteen twenty five, and uh, and thinking about what might make a good game, and uh, and then we'll we'll see you next year. Or if that seems too far away. 
keep looking through stuff that came out in 1924 and just do something with it for your own sake or for fun because it's not just one month of the year that we should make use of new <laughs> public right. domain stuff. It should be an ongoing thing. <laughs> yes, that too, that too. Because there's a lot more than just these 16 things that came out into the public domain in 1924. <laughs> so, Yeah. Cool. Well, uh, thanks to both of you for taking the time to do the podcast. And thanks to everyone for listening. And we'll be back next week. Thanks. All right. Bye. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Bye.